This is exactly right. Hello. We want to take a second to tell you about one of our favorite podcasts, Disgraceland. If you like music, pop culture, and true crime, this is the podcast for you. Through host Jake Brennan's deeply researched storytelling, you'll hear all about the lives and crimes of musicians like Jerry Lee Lewis, Jay-Z, The Rolling Stones, and so many more. And now Disgraceland is expanding to include artists, actors, athletes, and other icons from Anthony Bourdain to Andy Warhol. Full episodes are released every Tuesday. Check out Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Goodbye. Welcome. I didn't know we were starting. Welcome to my, <laughs> to favorite, my favorite murder. We didn't do the thing where we nod at we each didn't. other for five seconds before we actually <laughs> launch into it. Do prayer hands. I busted out. You did. I busted out by starting without you, and I busted out by <laughs> biting into an apple right before we started. Like, that was anything you can do in the entire time frame of doing a podcast. Eating an apple never comes into it. That's Karen Kilgariff. Oh, that's Georgia Hardstark. <laughs> I'm not eating an apple. I'm drinking a kombucha because I'm just pretending I'm drinking alcohol and it's oh, not alcohol. I bet there's a little bit of alcohol in there. Oh, though. I hope so. Because it's fermented. Because right? I put whiskey in it. Oh, <laughs> oh because <laughs> both hands are shaking really hard. <laughs> Have you ever seen those really like it's in the movies and stuff where there's a really old drunk that whose hand shakes so bad he has to tie a kerchief around one hand and then pull it around his neck so he can pull <gasps> his hand up to, to get a, pour a drink into his mouth? No. Yeah. Oh, the ravages of alcohol. Just saying. Today's a- 15 days off for me. Really? Yeah. I didn't want to ask because I didn't yes. want to put pressure on. I get it. Yeah. But so I'll just Dude, say it. Two, your past two weeks. I know. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. What's going on? Do you want to report any feelings? <laughs> any? Are you having hallucinations? No. How or how shaky are your hands? <laughs> I'm good. I'm sleeping fucking amazingly. I'm not having those 3 a.m. shame hours where oh. I just wake up and I'm like, you fu- why'd you fucking drink again last night? Like you were going to this time you're going to do it and hating myself. Yeah. Not having those. I'm not taking naps. I'm feeling fucking good. That's great. Yeah. Well, the poison's leaving this, the body. Is it? The poison's leaving the system. How long does it take to... Not feel like, um, God, from what I can remember from medical school, it's right around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I say you're basically, I'd say a a month. Yeah. I think they usually say 28 days of a habit broken is a broken habit. So I think if you, you know, but I, but I bet you just system wise, like running clean for two over two weeks yeah. is primo. You're in you're in golden state. Thank now. you. And I've just been shoveling turmeric into my face. What's that do? Uh, it it helps with inflammation. Nice. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything? Any other tips or tricks for how you got oh. two weeks is a long time. I am falling asleep listening to the book that I recommended. Like I've listened to it three or four times at this point. Nice. Uh, it's This Naked Life by Annie Grace. I'll fucking say it again. It has changed everything for me amazing and i have other suggestions too at some point i'll do we'll, it. we'll have a full talk through yeah. about it yeah i love it because uh i you talking about that last week i was like you don't have to it ha- doesn't have to be alcohol yeah to be pointing and looking at a thing that you want to let go of yeah and it's just more about the because i actually kind of 
breezed through that book just to see oh, how cool. alcohol centric it was. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, I could completely listen to this. Yeah. To be. You could just have it about food. You could have it about weed, whatever you want. Yeah. About. I mean, those aren't my problem. <laughs> I didn't mean you. I want I want to do it about just being too nice to people and it being too helpful. I truly didn't mean you when I said that. And somehow I hit you spot on. Well, it's all I talk about. It's all I talk about. But you know, there are these things where like, you know, it's, apples it's, before podcast. Just eat just biting into a honey crisp, just one bite and throwing it away. That's a terrible habit that has to be get gotten mm. rid of. Mm. I think these days though, the the stress and and daily horror that everyone is dealing with and that you know, just the the temperature and and literally figuratively mm-hmm. politically, people are relying on things probably now more than ever. 100%. And coping with things that maybe might not be working. So yeah. stuff like this and these conversations, I think, can be really helpful, even if it's cash, even if it's not like, yeah. uh-oh, I crashed my car for the fifth time <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But it's just kind of like, I, I want to figure out what actually feels good, yeah. not what my habit is. You know what I've been thinking about? I, You know, in, in AA, you hit rock, people hit rock bottom and that's when you decide to quit. Yeah. I haven't done that, but I think I've hit rock boredom or I'm so <laughs> fucking bored when I drink and I'm so bored I drink because I'm bored <laughs> and I'm bored of that yes. and I want something new right you know what I mean a hundred percent okay because it's almost like you're like I'm just gonna go walk down that same hallway again right and so yes there's great things down that hallway there's a pinball machine yeah and there's drama right and there's like woo confetti and yeah chain. and it's like you're more yourself or so you think, and yeah. you're more excited and happy, or so you think, yeah. in that hallway. And brave. There's all these things the yeah. hallway makes you believe. Right. But then, yeah, after a while, you're like, is there any other fucking part yeah. of this house I could please go <laughs> sit in for a while? That is a great analogy. It is an analogy. Well, great job. Thank you. It might even be a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but who can say? Now, I would like to talk about something more important than your sobriety, and that's a new TV show that I found. <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. Um... And I'm surprised because I was so excited about this show that I thought I could get you. Yeah. But again, it's proven that we are polar opposites and do not have the same taste. It's HBO's new series starring and directed by the great Jason Bateman Mm -hmm. called The Outsider that is about did he or did he not commit this crime? And I think it's so good. Mm -hmm. Um, I do, too. But I accidentally, like a year ago, read the book and I... I didn't like it. <laughs> right. So I stopped. Oh, so I think it's it's cl- it's kind of clouding how I look at it, but I do really like it. And I'm going to watch it. And also probably needs to be said also, it's, uh, Stephen King has recently said some problematic shit yeah. that other people wouldn't like. So that might be clouding it for some people. Right. I didn't even realize he had anything to do with it. So I watched it and got these big, the night of feelings, mm. those old, remember, was that 2016 uh, or 2017? so nice. And we're like, yes, what is this? What is it? Who is Riz Ahmed? I love Why it. is this taking over my yeah. life? I only want to look at this TV show for the rest of my life. Absolutely. It's similar feelings in that way. And then also just I've loved Jason Bateman since, you know, he came into my life via Silver Spoons, sure. the great uh, syndicated <laughs> Ricky Schroeder vehicle um, as the villain. Then he got his own show called... Uh, What's your move? What the fuck was that? Was it was called? And it was like a kid with a single mom, and the guy oh. across the hall wanted to date his mom, and it was so it was like him versus <gasps> the adult. I never saw that. It's so good. Okay. He is so fucking good as a child actor. It. Oh my god, he's like twelve years old, and he it's like he's fucking 
uh, he's unbelievable. What's the actor, actor who's also in the show who was in Bloodline? What's his name? He's amazing. Ooh, um, is it Norman Reedus? No, that's the guy from Walking Dead. Is it? Should we pause and? <laughs> Also, the detective from The Night Of is also on it as the lawyer. Oh, is that? Okay. So the detective that's like a, all anti-Riz Ahmed and then... Ben the, Mendelsohn. Ben Mendelsohn is the guy from Bloodline. Yes. And he's incredible. He's so good. I love him. He's the detective in this one. Yeah. Then the lawyer is the guy that was the detective on The Night Of. That's why. That's where I was getting my Night Of feelings. Got it. Good. Um, let me change the Goodbye. subject. Uh, casually and cleanly change the subject. <laughs> cool. Okay. I just saw this news <laughs> that I wanted to tell you because I thought you would love it as much as I did. Please. So there's this soccer team. Uh, you you know, you and I went and saw soccer when we were in the UK. Yes, we call it football. Football. It was uh -huh. so much fun. So there's a soccer team. They're called Roma. They're from Italy. And they're like, big deal. <laughs> a big deal. <laughs> they're called Roma. They're from Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Can you believe it? It's so crazy. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? So I guess they're like known for having a really witty, funny Twitter account. Oh. And now they've done something where, so the incoming transfer announcements, that's when like we have this new player. Was that what that, that's what that means? Sure. I don't know shit about sports, so I'm going to get this wrong. I text Vince the other day when he was watching football. How many innings are left? <laughs> <laughs> not even to be cute. I was not being cute. <laughs> I just didn't. I sure, don't. Sure. I'm not. So now when they post a photo and like a news announcement of their incoming transfers, their new players, side by side with it, they pair um, a slideshow and pics of missing children from no. various countries. No. So every time, and it's big news when someone gets transferred. So yes. every time someone clicks on it to read the news, <sighs> there are missing children that you need to keep an eye out. And guess what? Six fucking children have been found because of this no. so far. How amazing is that? Oh, are you crying? I might. <laughs> Am I going to cry? Oh, God. I can't. I'm holding my cheeks. Take a bite of an apple. That's very... It. <laughs> Push that down. Don't do what you like. A bite of this apple. Um, that's beautiful. Isn't that, I, that amazing? Is absolutely what, it sh what yeah. people should be doing. For that's no reason. Beautiful. They have no fucking stake in it. It's just like such a good thing to do. It's some somebody within that uh, club yeah. or within that system over right. there. It realizes this gets all this attention and for what? Yeah. Aside from the joy of this sport, yeah. which God bless that. Yeah. But what else could we be actually doing? Totally. Here? It's That's incredible. Beautiful. It's incredible. Uh, arrivederci, Roma. Huh? <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> Actually, and you know, the fall line. Buonasera, Roma. Oh. Ah. The fall line on Instagram, their Instagram account is a lot of those missing people, too. And it's a lot of um, missing people that are not, that are marginalized in the community. So, they're, uh, so their missing person information isn't as widespread as it would be for someone, right. say, who's white. So, yes. it's really, so the fall line follow them, too. Because we, and uh, everyone knows this, especially people that follow true crime, but God, we've been so the media has taught us that the most important missing person is a blonde teenage girl sure. over the years yeah. we have been indoctrinated uh, right. into believing that and it's really beautiful when we can start changing that narrative any way anyone can yeah. the fall line's been working on that so hard i wanted to read uh this tweet because this girl sent this so as we talked about last uh week Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. God, was that last week? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck. The murder squad got their first yes. cold case solved. Amazing. Very exciting. You can go listen to that episode now. So there was a lot of online action about that. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to talk and read to the Did you see it's in the Rolling Stone? It's in Rolling Stone? 
That they did that? They did a little article on <gasps> Rolling Stone. I didn't know that. Paul Holes and Billy Jensen talking. Oh, hell yeah. And so they got all cool. their they got all their pictures ready of like them sitting really moodily yeah. on the side of a desk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. So everyone's all excited for the uh, murder squads solve. And then listener um, named Shelby wrote in. Shelby. Shelby. Uh, the Exactly Right Network podcast, The Fall Line, led former prosecutor Laura Coates to bring the case of the Millbrook twins to Oxygen to help investigate their disappearance. The true power of podcasting. That's fucking right. So I thought that was super cool that she basically is like saw the other heat yeah. and was like, can we actually turn this back a little bit to the fall line? Because those guys. A hundred percent. You know, they're, they're they're doing amazing work they and are. they're they're very under the radar yeah. about it. They just do it and they're getting it done. And it's so not exciting. like Paul and Billy. You have to be uh, like, oh, <laughs> Why are you stuck? Look at over here. Limp, can I uh, admit something to you? Always. Here's my. Di- this is dirty secret Let corner. Let me hear it. I never watched, listened to, or participated in any way in Dirty John. Never once. And so all these conversations that we, I, this happens sometimes where I really take a step back from just getting into true crime because yeah. there's now, as everybody you knows, you have to ca- you have to be so up to date on everything. Yes, and people want to talk about all of it, and we do too. But like sometimes I'm just like I can't, I can't watch another story. Like I'm this. so behind on the podcast, like all the new cool podcasts that are coming out of true crime. I'm so behind on it. Yeah, I've been up on them lately, and goddamn, there's some great ones. There's some ones that are like, it's so... I, I'm telling you, Murder in Oregon is yes, a, a I, humongous accomplishment. That's the one I did listen to and I loved it. Oh man, it's so good. And it kind of is like, it's about the power of the press and how we really do need to protect journalists and the people that are really doing, you know, the journalists and the media that are doing the good jobs are the, sometimes the only people holding anyone, yeah. anyone's feet to the fire ethically. Definitely. And it's so important um, and crucial, especially the, in this day and age. So I basically just binged Dirty John, oh. the TV show. Oh, for two, like two days. Basically, I just kind of like in my 4 a.m. thing where I can't stop getting up at 4 a.m. and being oh, fully awake. No. So I'm just like, I just stayed up all night and watched oh that my show, God. which that show is now I understand what you mean. It's so infuriating. Yeah, that, you know, I only listened to like two episodes yeah. because I was I just couldn't get through it. It's so frustrating. It's so frustrating and infuriating. And it reminds me of my mom and yeah. I just, I couldn't get, and it reminds me of everyone I fucking grew up with in Orange County. I yes. just can't get through it. It's tough because this, you know, this woman is a victim and, um, and that is a great story yes. to tell because people getting their lives overtaken by psychopaths. Totally. And the way those people will stop at nothing to like end, end thing and the, and the total lack of logic for right. these people and how they do things. But the way, it was like, it was like, nothing's a big deal. Nothing yeah. registers. Yeah. And so these poor children that are being affected by that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could see it all. Like it was very emotional yeah. and it was very difficult where just like these girls, it didn't matter what they said and, yeah. and how difficult that is for like kids who grew up in family situations where they didn't get hurt a lot and yeah. they didn't get their time in and people didn't pay attention. Yeah. Man, that was difficult. I'll tell you, watching your parents date is something that I don't fucking wish on anyone it really sucks it just is like 
It's so ugly. Yeah, I bet. You know, um, I can't. I never had to deal with it. Yeah. So I, but I can only imagine that's the vulnerability yeah, of that and like strangers and ugh. And you have to be vulnerable to yeah. get to get into that shit, and you have to trust people. Yeah. And that's like big thing for me lately. It's just I don't like trust anyone. Trust issues are so deep, and they're so fucking like when you get that that alarm set yeah. off with a trust issue. Yeah. It like. Personally, it's like it rocks your world. Yeah. It's just like your bell gets rung and you just don't know. And you'll never again in the yes. same way unless you act how totally dare. vulnerable. But it's like, well, what if you're right? And what if you're just ignoring fucking red flags? Yes, I know. It's it. But, you know, at the same time, you do. You have to do it. You have to. You have to trust and you have to be open. And it's just like the whole this whole study of it was yeah. very it was difficult. But God damn it. God bless Connie Britton. What yes. a fucking she's. Incredible. Unbelievably great actress. She's she incredible. Is. Oh, and thing, so watchable. Can I say what I binged this weekend that I had no fucking Could clue you? about? Please? I didn't know anything about it before. The Watchmen or just oh, Watchmen. Watchmen, yes. Did you watch it on HBO? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy fucking shit. The best, right? It was like made for me. I love it so much. Fucking Regina King. Regina King. Regina She has been putting in her work yep. day after day, year after year for so long and killing it. And uh, now she's like, it's so exciting to watch a person. And who's always been so great continue this rise just like yeah. fucking just continue to rise Ugh. and rise and then she is the heart and soul of that yeah. series and it was so good it, I'm not done with it yet so don't tell me okay um, like, I don't think I could it's yeah. so like I read Watchmen and I didn't Did know you? what was going on yeah we tried to watch the movie and it was terrible uh, I like the movie, okay. but it is that thing of, I get very defensive about comic books because I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't get symbolism. You know what I mean? Like I immediately, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know about Greek mythology yeah. and I bail. Yeah, me too. Oh, I just have to, did you know Brene Brown is coming out with her own podcast? Yes, it's new. I, I think it's out. It's not. There's oh. a trailer out. Oh, okay. And then it's like, you know, we can all go run and subscribe. Yeah. Uh, it's called Unlocking Us. Yeah. Yes, girl. Yeah. Unlock Renee, us. We're Help here. us. We're, we need you. We're here for you. Get out here. But it's already like, it's number one, I it think. It is number one. I saw it. That's why I thought On it was the out. It's yeah, no. number one already. The trailer the is number one. What Hell yeah. That's how we, like, so it's... It's so exciting to welcome Brene Brown to the podcasting community. Amen. We're here with our tray of cold cuts saying <laughs> welcome to the church hall. I've made a crudite platter. <laughs> We're so excited to see you. Yeah. And cannot wait to hear. I don't give a shit if she's just r reading off a list of things in her kitchen. Yeah. I want to hear it. Yeah. It'll Please. be beautiful and helpful. So, It'll help everyone. So excited. Those kitchen items. <laughs> um, am I first? You're first. Okay. Right, Stephen. I saw your notes. I read. I read your notebook earlier. You did? My secret diary. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. 
Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code space 80. Goodbye. Okay. Well, speaking of alcoholism, Mm. but first, speaking of the fact that we asked everyone to uh, send us suggestions of murders that we should cover. Sure. That was the best fucking idea we've ever had. I mean, it only took us four years. Yeah. (laughs) What a great idea. (laughs) Solicit. It uh, ended up being great for me because I found this murder that I had never heard of, would have never probably found if Jeannie G hadn't emailed it to us. Jeannie G! Jeannie G! Thank you! She also sent us a hilarious photo of a guy uh, on the leg leg thigh push machine what's it sure. called when you, I think leg press leg press who had chicken feet socks on I saw that okay yeah, oh Stephen I think you sent it to us oh good or, no maybe you just saw it someone texted someone, sent someone it texted it to me and it was a delight go find it everyone it's fucking hilarious yeah um so this is the blackout murders okay any idea yet? Because I feel like you might... Texas? No. You might know it because of the time period. You were... The 70s? An adult. No. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what if I guess the whole story? <laughs> keep Can going. I just keep guessing? Keep going. What did it take place in... <laughs> 
Dubuque? No. Okay. So I got info from this from a New York Times article from 1994 by Joseph Berger, a New York Magazine article by Suzanne O'Malley. And actually, I looked her up and she's just like, you know, really fucking incredible journalist and author. And she... She was a crime journalist, and she's the one who discovered the false testimony during the Andrea Yates trial, which led to the reversal of her conviction. Remember that? Remind me. Is she the one that drowned the kids? Andrea Yates is the one who drowned all five of her kids. Okay. And one of the, um, one of the prosecution's arguments was that she, she, it was premeditated because she had seen a Law and Order, um, episode about it. Okay. And then this fucking chick, Suzanne O'Malley, f- figured it out after she had been convicted that that, fu- the date that that came out was after the trial. Ew, chills. Ew, right? ew. So she got a retrial and this time she was um, declared insane and sent to the mental hospital where right. she belongs. Yes. So that's pretty incredible. That's Congratulations, Suzanne O'Malley. <laughs> You're, good uh, eye. you're good an American eye, hero. That's right. You're a law and order American hero. And she also wrote the 1995 um uh, what's it called? A Law and Order episode about this case called Privileged. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> hold on. Yeah, she's she's very. She went on to work on Law and Order after ha- discovering this thing on Law and Order. She just wrote some episodes. Hell, holy shit! Yeah, incredible, right? I wonder if she was sitting now. I'm just saying. Okay. Two situations. One, she got herself into that situation and that earned her a job on Law and yes. Order. Two, she already worked on Law and Order, had a encyclopedic knowledge, yeah. and then went, hold on, that's not. That's right. Time, that timeline. Because there was no like sitting in the courtroom Googling like IMDb. Right. There was no such thing as that. Not in 94. No. Okay. Um, and then also I listened to an episode of Once Upon a Crime about this. So. Okay. Uh, blackout murders. I'm starting here. I'm starting in the spring of 1990. Great. Okay. Uh, 23-year-old Paul Cox realizes after yet another alcohol-induced blackout that he has a fucking drinking problem. And his girlfriend's like, you got to go to AA. So he goes. Up until that point, Paul had had a troubled life, even though he had had all these fucking advantages. He grew up in the town of Larchmont, which is an affluent suburb of New York in Westchester County, which we all know is fucking bougie as shit. It's bougie here in L.A., Larchmont neighborhood. That's right. Right. That's like where all the assholes go to eat, <laughs> pretend to eat pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Village Pizzeria. I just blew great. up large money. <laughs> they'll never have me back. <laughs> Um, so this is like a, this is a total waspy town and Paul Cox himself is like a waspy, good looking young man born in 1967. He's the fifth of seven kids. Mm. And you know, when rich people have kids, it's to show off how much money they have. Sure. Right. Um, everyone gets a horse. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a prominent family in this, in the community, his, uh, distinguished, in the community, his father is a, vi- a vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank. Ooh. So come on, Ooh. yeah, privilege, privilege. They actually have a bowl of cash that's just sitting <laughs> on their coffee table. You can just take a five or a ten, right? So nothing's wrong with privilege. It's just like take advantage of it, you guys. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Don't do that. What a f- refreshing stance in twenty twenty. <laughs> There's nothing wrong right, with privilege. Edit that out immediately. <laughs> do not. Guys, what I meant was do good with it. I think the name of this episode. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with privilege. <laughs> I meant do good things with it. Be a good person and add to your community. Do, 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 do. Oh, it's the cancellation trumpets. They're coming for us. <laughs> oh, oh, this Am I is it. Get canceled? This is the final one. This is our final cancellation I meant call. Do good things with your privilege. <laughs> no, stop blowing that goddamn horn of shame. Do good things with your privilege. Yes. Please. 
is the is the take message. advantage of it and do good things with your privilege. The taking advantage is already happening. <laughs> That's built into privilege. <laughs> okay. So as a young kid, he got into trouble like in first grade for stealing money from his parents. Then he started stealing money from other kids in the class. He had failing grades, um, which was later determined because it was due to a learning disability, which wasn't, uh, you know, uh, known at the time. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't check for that shit back then. No, they were just like, please read fast or we don't care if the letters are all backwards and jumbled up for <laughs> That's you. That's right. After a failed suicide attempt, um, after being sent to a private high school, Paul sees a psychiatrist who says that he had nat- matricidal and patricidal tendencies, which means you want to kill your mom and your dad. Mm-hmm. He eventually graduates high school, but had dropped out of the private college his dad had pulled strings to get him into. He quits the Air Force two weeks in. He's like, oh, this sucks by yeah. saying, oh, this is hard. Yeah, this is not <laughs> this fun. Is or military. That's right. This is not taking advantage of my privilege. No. Um, he lies on a psychological evaluation to get out. And he was more into drinking and partying than worrying about his future as I feel like, you know, the time and place. It's it's a pretty normal thing. No judgments. Yeah. Especially <laughs> what's that early 90s uh-huh. we're talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah. That was kind of what everyone did. Yeah. Back then, um, there was no internet. Yeah. There was no uh, forever war. Everyone was chilling. Yeah. And listening to pretty good music and wearing their dad's cardigan. That's right. Um, so cut to 1990 when he enters AA and starts getting into the program and getting sober for the first time since I think even at like as a kid, he started drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So after he gets sober, he starts to have these vivid, crazy dreams and flashbacks in which he kills his parents. Um, they're super realistic and they freak him out. But obviously, he didn't kill his parents. They're still alive. So while working on steps four and five of AA, which are you have to make a moral inventory of yourself and you have to admit to God yourself and to another human being your wrongdoings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during those steps, he tells his girlfriend that he needs to tell her something. Oh, he, he's crying. He's distraught. And he tells her that th- he thought he had k- actually killed someone during a blackout years before. He doesn't think it's just a dream. Oh, uh, and he's just now remembering the details. See, this is hard. I want to I know because I want to ask you about do you remember blackouts at some point? Do they come back to you? I would Really? Uh, yes. There are lots of memories that I have where I drank till I didn't know what was going on. But then the next day, it, w- <laughs> it would be my, like my brain would go, Hey, do you want to see a Polaroid really quick? <sighs> and there's a couple where like, <laughs> there's one I have that's the most humiliating where I'm in a blackout. And then the next thing I know is I'm trying to kiss someone. <gasps> And they're moving away with a kind of like horrified look on their face. But the next day, I remember waking up and just having a bad feeling like I did something. And then like around 4 p.m. after like four bagels and watching TV for six hours, (laughs) a quick Polaroid comes up of this guy basically kind of like backing up. And I wouldn't I like it didn't know until that point. And then I'm like, oh, no. And it was that kind of thing where it was like, if my brain wanted to serve it up, yeah. it would let me know what I did. But other than that, it was... So I also know, like, the reason this part of the story is giving me the super sweats. Sorry. No, I mean, <laughs> but it's it's that thing. If you check out, yeah. you still are doing things. Right. And that's... The, that's scary. It's dangerous. Yeah. It's like, it's it, it's totally scary. Yeah. And You're I, not making decisions anymore. No. Your subconscious is. You're, and you're leaving yourself up to the protection of the right, universe. Right. Like there's it's so goddamn dangerous yeah. for personal uh 
personal safety. That's right. I don't know how I did. Well, I, I like to fr- thank my friend Dave Mesmer because oftentimes he was the person that was loading me into Aww. a car or loading me over here, yeah. loading me over there. Like it, that thing where like someone's so drunk they can't walk, but yeah. they're still fucking walking. Yeah. So you have to kind of run around near the oh, guys. Come on. Keep an eye on your drunk friends. Come on, everybody. Please make sure that they get home safely. Okay. So let's get back to the shit. Yeah. So he's distraught and he tells his girlfriend that the he thought he had killed someone during a blackout. He's just now remembering it. His girlfriend's like, no freaking way. I know you better than anyone. You would have never done that. And she tells him to go talk to his sponsor. Mm. So um, which, of course, is someone in uh, in AA who's been through the program longer than you who can help guide you through it. Yeah, essentially. So Paul tells his sponsor the same thing. He wasn't certain he had committed it, the murders. And um, his his sponsor was like, talked basically was like, talk to a lawyer and the lawyer who was also in the program uh advised paul to fucking shut the fuck up (laughs) stop talking about it yeah go continue staying sober and go to a therapist yeah basically he's like stop talking about it because he kept giving more and more details really yeah like he started to believe it okay but paul couldn't stop remembering details and he couldn't stop talking about it so for two years he told at least seven people in alcoholics anonymous uh, about the vivid memories that were coming back to him. Oh, no. no one said a thing. So, okay, basically in 1993, this woman uh, wants to move into his apartment with the other roommates in the program. And he's like, okay, you can move in, but I have to tell you something first. Uh. I have nightmares and sometimes wake up screaming because I uh, I think I might have killed someone uh, back when I had a blackout, but I don't remember fully what happened. See, now I'm on his lawyer's side. That's just like, why would you be telling people that? Yeah. If you don't know for sure. Yeah. Anyway, all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, she moves in anyways. Okay. You know, up to each his own, etc. So uh, Mrs. H, she, she's known by Mrs. H. She decides to move in anyways. But after a couple months, she has to move out for health reasons. And finally, in January 1993, after two years since he first started telling people about the, his flashbacks, she finally tells her therapist about it. Mrs. Miss H does. And she's like, yeah, you got to go to the police about this. Mm. So after telling as many as seven people in AA about these flashbacks that he started to think were real... Um, who, because of the anonymous nature of the program, Alcoholics Anonymous, kept the info to themselves. <laughs> we had a fr- sorry, we had a friend who joined AA and used to come home and tell us every person that was at the meeting, <laughs> all famous people, oh, no. constantly. And so my friend Laura called it. He's going to A because there is no anonymous, <laughs> and she just like he's going to his A meeting. Oh my god! <laughs> I always felt very guilty because yeah. I knew deep down I was going to end up there soon. Yeah, and I'd just be like, yeah, I hope no one tells my all of my <sighs> fucking secrets. Shit! But that's very Hollywood because yes. it was always just celebrity, of course. You know, whatever. So finally. Paul's story comes out to police. This is the story. In 1988, when Paul was just 21 years old, he was enrolled at Belmont Abbey College in Belmont, North Carolina. And he had just learned that he was flunking out on all of his classes. When, Been there. Yeah, yeah. When he had to go home for um, for the holidays. So uh, it's December 30th. He'd been drinking heavily all day with and night with his friends. They're at a local bar and, at that night and they're drinking tons of beer and kamikazes, mm-hmm. which is a fucking mistake, let me tell you. What are kamikazes? It's vodka. I, I and- just got acid reflux hearing the word kamikaze. <laughs> I haven't heard that drink name in so long. Those are the ones that are like, it's the bunch of uh, liquor mixed together and it's a so it's a little shot that's kind of sweet. It's orangey. It is like 
what the fuck's in there? Vodka, Midori, and like, or like vodka and some kind of orange liqueur. The kamikaze is made of equal parts vodka, triple sec, and lime juice. No. You guys, stop consuming so much sugar in your drinks. Don't do that. It's going to make you even. It makes you so much more hungover. It's like adds to the pain. But also it just like, it makes it go down easier in the front. It's all part of the bad decision making (laughs) where you're just like, I guess I'll have, you know what, just put four sugar cubes in a shot of (laughs) Bailey's Irish cream. Oh, no. Mm. So they're fucking absolutely shit faced. Yeah. Um, And eventually, because he's drunk, he gets into his car. It's his mom's borrowed car to drive his friends home. Oof. Yeah. Since he was drunk driving, he misses a sharp turn and crashes into a guardrail. Okay. And the car won't start back up again. So they all get out of the car and the friends are like, we're walking back to the bar. Fuck this. And he's like, I'm just going to walk in the opposite direction home. So uh, he leaves the car there. And what happens next, he says, ha- he has no memory of it until he began to get sober. Oh. So instead of walking to his family home, Paul goes to the home he had lived in until he was seven years old. So that was the first seven years of his life. Obviously. Why did I say that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just to just so everyone's sure. Does everyone know math? If you're seven, that means you've lived seven years. (laughs) Okay. Which his family had sold in 1974. So the home had been bought and was still inhabited by Dr. Lakshman Rao Shervu, who's 58, and his wife, Dr. Shanta Shervu, she's 51. The Shervus are a well-liked and respected family. They had left Bombay, India in 1968 with just the shirts on their back in order to start a new life in L.A. Nope. (laughs) In order to start a new life in the U.S., Eventually, Dr. um, Shervu, Mr. Shervu, was able to get his PhD in nuclear chemistry. He lands a... um Sorry, my say that again. Eventually, Dr. Mr. Shervu is able to use his PhD in nuclear chemistry to get a job as a professor of nuclear medicine at Einstein Montefiore Hospital. Like big, big time. Yes. Big time smart people. Yeah. And in 1974, the family is able to buy the Cox's house in the upscale town of Larchmont, New York, where mm-hmm. they had been living. So they had two children. And while she raised them, Mrs. Dr. Shervu, is that right? Uh, worked as a lab technician. Well, late- she's a doctor too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so just Dr. Charvu. I just want to make it clear that I'm talking about her. And Dr. Rett. I almost said, got it. <laughs> cancel, cancel, cancel. I'm, I, I have to say this right now. The pressure building in me of what the story is about to be yeah. about the Charvus is so upsetting to me. It's, yeah, you're right. It, it's so upsetting to me and it's uh, awful. Let's blame Jeannie G. Oh, yeah. This is your fault. Okay. No, it's awful. It's, it's terrible. It's so bad. It's insane. Mm-hmm. They had two kids, and while she raised them, uh, Dr. Shanta worked at, as a lab technician. She later goes back to school for her MBA, and in her fucking 40s, she went to medical school in order to reach her lifelong goal of becoming a doctor. Oh. So these are hard-working, intelligent people. That are giving back to the community and uh, important members. They are using their privilege. They're using their privilege for good. That's right. <laughs> And at the time, she was a resident, a resident in geriatrics. Mm-hmm. So they put their children through Princeton. They supported family members back home in India, and they helped eight of their siblings immigrate to the U.S. And they were hardworking, intelligent, reliable people, which is why on January 2nd, 1989, after no one in their life had heard from the couple, um, the fa- family
family member goes to the house to check on them. And when they go around to the back of the house, they see that one of the panes of glass in the back door has been broken out. And so the family member, there's no cell phones, remember, and he doesn't yeah. want to go in and contaminate the crime scene, gets in his car, drives to the police station and makes them come back with him. Wow. Yeah. So when the police arrive, they go to the master bedroom and they find what they described as a war zone. Ugh. It's awful. There's blood spattered on the vaulted ceilings, which is crazy. Oh, Jesus. Um, and on the walls and on the floors, it's horrible. And the bodies of the two doctors are lying on their bed, Rouse still under the covers and Shanta across the bed with her head on his arm. Mm. Shanta had been stabbed nine times. Rao had been stabbed 15 times to their faces, to their bodies bodies um, and both of their throats had then been slashed. Oh my god. It's just horrid. Oh my god. There's no sexual assault, there's no robbery, there's no murder weapon found. There's some um there's a handprint or a palm print found at the scene on the pillow, but uh they didn't match the more than 60 prints investigators compared them to. Investigators were like, well, you know what probably happened is Two hired Indian assassins as part of a vendetta had killed the Shervus and then fled the country. That's what their that's what their conclusion was when they couldn't figure out who it was. Yeah. Not yeah. seeing it. No. That of course upset the Shervu family because they felt like their immigrate immigrant status made it so that their case wasn't being taken seriously. And for, Well, and also just how convenient you make right. up the most convenient story and then go, Well, that's probably what right, happened. Right. With no evidence that that's the that's the case. And then and oh, okay. So then I guess you can close it because the the people from India were killed by people right. from India who left and went back to India. Stuff like that doesn't happen here. So it must have been outsiders, yeah. that thinking. So for over four years, there's no suspects in the murders of the doctors. Back to Miss H telling the police the story that Paul had told her, including the fact that he said he did it because he had a blackout and had a flashback of abuse and thought he was killing his parents. So he went back to his childhood home, which you they don't talk about. But you and I, this is an opinion podcast, can yes. fucking speculate as to what happened and, you know. The, the abuse that he must have been suffering to to want to kill his parents. Yes. Yeah. Um, she tells them that he had told other AA members as well. And so they bring all those AA members in and they're like, why didn't you tell us what's wrong with you? The Shervu family is. But you wouldn't if, if Would it's you? a person. Yeah, because it's not proven. It's not. It's a person saying, I'm afraid I did this thing. Yeah. Which is as real as it is not real. Right. I, and it's not on those people That's who true. are listening to a person kind of dump what however many years of uh, drug abuse and like confusion you wouldn't go oh i'm gonna take this fear you have and go report you but the more details he starts to over the two years the more details he starts to come out and then he's he says because he knows that this is in his town so he knows about these murders oh he does yeah because it's his old house yeah on the news the next morning yeah that's Uh, the more detail that comes out then the more it turns to not yeah, that you have to do something. Yeah. So it. he thought he was killing his parents. When he sees the news the next morning, he realizes what happened. Ugh. So the Cherevu family is super pissed that so many people know knew who murdered their parents for two years but hadn't come forward um, while they suffered. So the now 25-year-old Paul Cox, he's a carpenter at this point. He's arrested on May 20th, 1993. And in addition to the statements of AA members, the police had a matching palm print of Cox's from the scene. Right. So Paul claims that he had woken up the next morning after the murders. He said he was covered in blood. He didn't know what it was, what was going on. He had the kitchen knife that he had taken from the kitchen, the Shervu's kitchen, um, after he had broken in. But he didn't remember anything from the night before. 
And so here's a little detail I saw. Either he or his mother incinerate, incinerated his bloody clothes. Oh. Yeah. Initially, he was saying that his mom took the clothes and just incinerated them. Yeah. So she must have had a fucking clue, right? Right. I mean, yeah, you don't burn clothes. No one burns clothes right. anymore. It's not, you know, right. the tens. No. <laughs> 1910s, yes. not the 2010s. Um, and then Paul took the knife and he throws it in a nearby lake. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So he must have, I mean. So he knew more he than knew. he. Yeah. I think he knew. Um, he later saw the news report about the murder of the Chervoos and he, and it's, he, he tells people later that he went back to the house to try to clean any fingerprints. So at that point. He went back to his old childhood home where he broke in and, oh, well, yeah. Now this changes everything. Right? Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting. Telling the story from his perspective. Yeah. I have so much empathy yeah. for a person who is like like that. Yeah. Now that we are hearing it from the Charvoux's perspective, which is these are two innocent people living a great life in a house they happen to buy. Yeah. And a monster breaks in the middle of the night and murders them in cold fucking blood. But he, it's hard for me to be like, well, he might still have had been blacked out, you know, but he's. He, he could I don't I'm not fucking making I don't think no, no. that that's an excuse at all no no um it's just but it's he, just but as soon as he knew I mean what is he gonna yeah it's just weird it's like you know that he has a reason but it's certainly no excuse no and it's not a vague concept now that we know that he knew this the, right. the news story that's not a vague concept that's he knew exactly what he did and he just didn't know it he wasn't positive because he didn't have the exact memory, right. but he can put two and two together. Yeah, exactly. Oy. But I mean, like, what would you like? Would you turn yourself in? I yes. Mean, fuck yes. Yeah. You did the bad thing. Sorry. Yeah. That's part of what what being an alcoholic and being a blackout drunk, knowing that you can fuck up like that. The second you even begin to put that together, at least come forward and say, this could be me. Yeah. You might want to check some prints of mine. Ugh. I mean, that's what you, he should have done. Totally. So he claimed he didn't remember the killings until after he sobered up in 1990 and um, that at the time he thought he was killing his parents. So um, the state charges uh, Paul Cox with four counts of murder, two for intentional murder and two for depraved indifference murder. Shit. Cox's attorney decides to go with the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, saying Paul was in a psychotic state when he killed the couple. The psychiatrist for the defense said Paul had snapped after a lifetime of being pushed to succeed and having been emotionally neglected by his mother and father and from the humiliating way they handled his chronic boyhood bedwetting. So, and and, uh, and had during a blackout killed them, essentially, so he thought. Um, I, I just wonder, like, there had to be more than that right like the abuse that had there he's wetting his bed that's always a sign of sexual abuse i mean perhaps yeah but even then he you can't kill your parents you can't there's so many abuse right. people that don't kill their abusers like there has to be a line drawn where no matter what your reasons are they're not justifiable yeah. reasons I think. Yeah. Um, and so he says, it's, the psychiatrist says it's almost as if, as if he were going back in time and eliminating the people he sought to blame for all his problems back when he was seven years old. So when the seven AA members are subpoenaed to testify against Paul, they're like, well, what the fuck? Uh, they claim their statements should be considered as privileged, just like clergy, attorneys, and psychiatrists. They're bound by AA principles of confidentiality, which... I, I've been to AA and NA meetings for some time, uh, on and off. I would never think that it's confidential. No. I mean, 
confidential between two people, but not legally binding confidentiality. Right. No, right. no, I would never assume that. No, but the judge and they're not clergy people. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> well, it's not the because same. it's a spirit. They say because it's spiritual. What's it called? Element. Yeah. Or like it's spiritually grounded. I mean, sure. I don't, I mean, up I don't, until a point, And I think that point is murder. Right. I think I agree. So the judge is like, no way, dude. And rules that the <laughs> Oh, the judge agrees. Yeah. Thank God. And rules that the state law does not extend um, privilege to self-help groups, which is essentially what it is. All seven AA members are ordered to testify, but they're, uh, they let them just use like Miss H and like let them use, uh, not full, not full names and their photos are forbidden to be taken. Mm-hmm. The first trial ends on June 28th in a mistrial after this one fucking juror who sounds like our like just sounds like everyone's worst nightmare um, would not accept the other 11 jurors conclusion that Paul Cox was not temporarily insane when he killed the Chervoos then this this uh, she had doubts that Paul had even committed the murders even though the defense admitted that he had oh so she just like was not she wasn't accepting the the facts that were being presented to her. She, she was would not, going off on her own. She would not get on the carousel and take a ride. With huh. them. Um, so the they have, carousel of facts, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's real fun. You yeah. should try it. Sometime. Get on there. So uh, they declare a mistrial. So Paul Cox went to a second trial, and by the way, he had already been bailed out by his parents for like two hundred grand and had, was home on house arrest, which sure. is what privilege gets you. Wow. Yeah. The parents knowing. That they wanted. Isn't that, doesn't that be the creepiest part? I mean, yeah. Come on home. Whew. Lot going on here. Yeah. Um, so he goes to a second trial in December of 1994. And one difference is that it, um, that Paul decides to testify in his trial. He tries to get the jury's sympathy by telling of all the abuse he suffered, such as having, I'm not kidding with this. They gave him gross sandwiches in his school lunch. His parents sometimes missed his sports games. His siblings didn't wish him a happy birthday and the gold stars he would get if he didn't wet his bed. So he says that's what? that's how he was. What so, about those gold stars? He didn't get them. They weren't big enough. Just What's the, the problem? Fact, just the gold stars showing that he would wet his bed in general, you know, okay. or not. Uh, you look mad. I'm livid. <laughs> I feel tricked that I empathized with him in the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, after deliberating for eight days, the jury rejected the insanity defense, but they also rejected the prosecution's request of a verdict of murder. And they found that he committed the murders under extreme emotional disturbance and found him guilty of two counts of manslaughter in the first degree. Mm. So now 27 years old, Paul Cox is sentenced to uh, two, like two, eight and a half to 25 year sentences to be served um, consecutively. So the convictions are appealed because the AA members, uh, they're they're ugh, It's a more of the, the clergy convent privilege saying that it was a religion. So they're trying to overturn his whole appeal based on the AA being um being privileged information. Okay. Westchester County DA, uh, Janine Pirro's like, hell no. Oh, Janine Pirro. Yeah. We know her from Fox News. Oh, really? Yeah. She's a judge and that appears a lot on Fox News and How gets, did I not uh, know that? she's been arrested for speeding at like 130 miles an hour. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Among other things. Look up. Uh, wow. Look it up for yourself. You might, she might be your hero. Well, she takes this to the Court of Appeals and they agree with her and uh, said that when he talked to AA members about the crime, he was just unburdening himself and seeking empathy and and guidance, not uh, a spiritual, you know, revelation. No. But 
I, you can't find anything online. All I could find was he was released in March of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said at the trial or a sentencing, I'm profoundly sorry for this tragedy to the Cherevu family as well as my own family. I was very sick at the time of these actions and I will regret them for the rest of my life. Yeah, I bet. And that is the blackout murders. Wow. That's a real uh, emotional and moral quandary totally. there. Totally. There's a lot going on, but you can't, I feel like once, once I, once you start hearing about there were actual yeah. victims, this was a real murder. This was not a, a blackout concept. Yeah. And people in town like cited with him and his family being like, it could have been any, it could have been any of our kids that did that. But it's like, can we talk about this fucking innocent couple who were sleeping and happened to buy the house? You know, it's just. Well, maybe, and maybe that's true that it could have been any of their kids that did it. But that what they're saying is any of our kids could be a murderer. So once your kid is a murderer, you have to go from there. Yeah. Once that is the thing that gets done, it's not a concept. And and the goal should not be to figure out how it's okay right. that they did that. Right. How the, to get them out of trouble. The goal should be you fucking did it. You took human lives. That matters. Let's please have this matter yeah. in, a, in a real way. Yeah. Let's get justice for the sheriff of the family. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. Also, right. I feel like this psycho. I was thinking when you were talking about the part of it being a psychotic episode, but there is a logic to him going to his childhood home hmm. that that uh, I feel like if I was uh, a lawyer and let's hope I'm not. Um, <laughs> you might be. <laughs> that. Uh, that would that would actually indicate logical thinking. And See, to plan- me, it's and- the opposite because he went to a home that he hadn't lived in for what's math thirteen years, right? And and killed his parents, even though they hadn't lived there for thirteen years. Like that's how deeply ingrained his pain and his, uh, you know, his. Sure, but he didn't just go, he didn't just walk and go into a random home. That's my thing, is that I feel like if you were in a psychotic state, you would walk, he would be Mm. walking and then kill the first two, uh, man and woman adult couple that he finds. But he didn't want to kill people. He wanted to kill his parents. Right. So therefore, he does the thing of going to back where he thinks his parents are. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could argue it both sides for the exact same fact. Yeah. But I'm looking at it as, it seems like that's actually a planned thing. And, and therefore, but whether there are, there literally are his parents, yeah. he is, that is premeditated murder. Yeah. So even, it doesn't make it better that it's, is his parents or is not his parents. Yeah. It's a, it's an act of premeditated murder within a, uh, alcoholic blackout. Yeah. Ugh. Crazy. Fuck, that's a nuts story. Yeah. I've never heard that. I hadn't either. I was hoping the whole time you were going to tell me it wasn't real <laughs> and that he somehow finds the real killer or something. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. I, it's certainly not your fault, <laughs> That's Georgia. not it. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard, <gasps> that's a touchy one. Fuck. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Great. For real. I mean. Oh, thank you. Great ter- terribleness. <laughs> Shit. Thank you. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, 
Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Are you ready to get into it? Let's do it. To move right along. Let's move in. Let's let's settle into this one. I also took a request from a great from a listener. This is fun. Um, and this one I liked because I feel like it goes along. You do these sometimes and I find them so delightful. I like to put it in the file of outrageous criminals. <laughs> so it's a little bit lighter yeah. and a little bit a tiny bit less okay. bad. Um, this is the story of Scott Scurlock, the Hollywood bandit. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know it yet. Okay. So uh, I'm going to tell it to you. Do it. This was suggested by a listener and her, uh, their Twitter handle is at doc underline under slash under slash. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> t- lower bar. Are you saying um, small line? What's b- it called? B- way at the bottom. What's it called? Underscore. Steven. <laughs> Steven the millennial. It's at doc underscore honey bear. Okay. And they're the ones that suggested this one. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, thank you for thinking of us. Um, so the uh, I got this from 
Wikipedia, of course. Please give $5 if you can. An article from hubpages.com, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really good article called William Scott Turlock, The Hollywood Bank Robber and the End of the Dream. And that's written by a writer named Westman Todd Shaw. Um, Then there's an article on historylink.org written by Daryl C. McClary. And also some information was taken from an article found on the Washington Secretary of State's blog called From Our Corner. Oh, wow. Is there a muffin recipe? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Please take that out. (laughs) The state secretary of Washington is a woman named Kim Wyman. Okay. Apparently, she fucking blogs. Love it. Good for her. Feelings. Dreams. Yeah. um, Challenges. Albums she's listening to these days. Five-day challenge. And then... And then also just remember this crazy crime. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Scott Sherlock, who is the Hollywood bandit. He was born on March 5th, 1955 in Fairfax County, Virginia. His father was a Baptist minister. His mother was an elementary school teacher. He has three sisters. Um, but as opposed to like the usual typical Hollywood thing of like the minister is all strict and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. In fact, it was the opposite. His, his parents were very permissive hmm. and Scott basically did whatever he wanted. He was also charming, charismatic and manipulative. Mm. And as he got older, he started looking like Mel Gibson. Oh, so he was actually a, a, a becoming a human monster um, in that he clearly did what he wanted and used his kind of like manipulative charm to get his way. Part of it. I mean, experienced it firsthand. <laughs> so, and actually looking at pictures, he, uh, to me, looks less like Mel Gibson and more like the sheriff from Jaws. What's that actor's name? Roy Scheider, Roy wow. Scheider, Roy Scheider. You burped that one out. <laughs> that was amazing to watch that. I barfed it up from my internal guts. Please watch Jaws. Rewatch Jaws if you haven't watched it in a while. As <laughs> opposed to this sack I'm carrying outside my body. <laughs> Filled with bile. Mm. So in 1974, he's 19 years old and he decides to move to Hawaii because his friend, Kevin Myers, is going to the University of Hawaii. So he's like, I'm going to go chill out there. Great. So Kevin then flunks out of the University of Hawaii. And so the two of them go to Plan B, working on a tomato farm on Oahu. Great. Right? Everyone's plan B in 1976. <laughs> so um, they do that for a little while, like a year and a half. And then one day they're on a hike. And this is in 1976. And uh, they walk across the, some of the neighbor's land. And they happen upon a bunch of pot plants. All right. And they see... That they take it as a sign that it's time to enact Plan C, which is stealing all these pot oh, plants, no. selling pot, and making a profit Don't off of it. Steal drugs from drug dealers, guys. Yeah. No, they're like, no, we're all about this. Oh, this is God. the life that we want to live. So Plan C seamlessly leads into Plan D, which is secretly growing pot plants on the tomato farm where they work. Wow, that's complicated, right? They're, but this is just, this is God's plan in action sure. for them. They're just seeing it coming to them because yeah. they're like, things are kind of falling apart. And now we're, t- we're basically helpers of a tomato farmer. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, ah, yeah, this, the song from the little mermaid place <laughs> <laughs> and the pot gets its legs yeah. it's, and, and it marries the prince. What do you the call prince. them? Feet. <laughs> 
<laughs> the pot grows feet and holds up a fork and calls it a whatchamadu and a dingly dong. Oh. So, so I laughed really hard when I was like, so they took these, they started growing pot plants on the tomato farm. Yeah. Because in my mind, and remembering my cousin growing pot um, in her mother's uh, field, pot oh. plants grow very tall in the wild. Uh-huh. Um, she actually grew sunflowers plants wow. around so she could hide the pot plants. Smart. You're narking out your cousin right now. <laughs> well, it's, you know, fucking 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, but so I started laughing because I was picturing tomato plants yeah. being low to the ground. So there's just like, it looks like Christmas <laughs> trees. And-, and then I looked it up online and of course, tomato plants can grow very tall and cr- tomato plant leaves kind of look like pot oh, leaves. Okay. So they blend real nice. I was thinking, I actually realized I was thinking of pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> So anyhow, my parents uh, lived on a tomato farm. For real? Yeah, in Israel. Did they really? Yeah. Did they work the farm? Yeah, you had to. It was a moshav, so it's like a kibbutz where every it's like the community has to. <laughs> it's like a moshav, so it's like a kibbutz. Oh, that make any sense to you? <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I love it. It's basically like a community that all works together, and the money's all you know. That's everyone. rat. Did yeah. they do that in the sixties and seventies? Seventy. Yeah. Hell yes. Yeah. Was. Was Janet's hair so long, far long past her butt? Not past her butt, but it was long. And my parents were so beautiful. Yes. They're still beautiful. Yeah, they true. both are incredibly attractive Thank people. You. When I see pictures of your mom, I get low self-esteem. Because <laughs> Janet's blowout is oh, major. Yeah. her She is perfectly put together. Yeah. She has, gr- you, you're a beautiful group, you hard stars. Thank you. You are. <laughs> Hot cousins. Yeah. Listen, I'm trying to tell a fucking story. Hey. <laughs> hey. So, so eventually the farmer from the tomato farm, old McDonald, we'll call it, <laughs> he, he finds the pot plants and he gets rid of the two of them. Okay. So Scott decides um, it's time to move back to the mainland. So in 1978, uh, he moves back to Olympia, Washington and enrolls in school to become a doctor at Evergreen State College. All right. So suddenly out of the blue, he's decided, and maybe this is something he wanted to do before and he was just too yeah. hot and manipulative to do it or whatever. Oh, he's a doctor. A doctor. Oh. So he goes to school to be a doctor and he's uh, very good he's very good in chemistry class but his old easy money drug dealer life still calls to him absolutely so he uses his chemistry skills (gasps) no in a visionary manner breaking bad style and starts cooking meth in the chem lab wow you can't do that yeah he can and did (laughs) and i wonder if he later wanted to oh no he wouldn't have but he should have sued okay so and me, I wonder if like that's the Breaking Bad people yeah. heard this story, but yeah. So essentially, <laughs> he starts making fucking bank. Oh my god! It's cooking and selling meth, sure. and of course doing meth. Yeah, because um, he is in med school, right. so he's got to fucking get through. So he makes so much money selling meth that he is able to buy himself a twenty-acre plot of land um, near Olympia that's really secluded that has a small house on it. Wow! And now, just simultaneously, and as like a footnote to this portion of the story, I want to remind anyone who has never seen I believe it's the Oregonian newspaper from Portland they have uh, it was from the early 2000s I believe from that's when I first saw it is their series faces of meth oh. when meth became such a was huge problem they up started there. that um, 
No, no, I'm just saying that on this side, it's a guy that's like, yeah, let's get meth going. Oh, that one. And meth began to ravage the Pacific Northwest in ah. such a serious way ah. that they started showing the mugshots of people who were bit getting arrested for petty crimes and then went on meth. And they're the, the series, series of mugshots. Ah. That's one of the most upsetting and disturbing things where over a series of like five to seven years, you watch a, a young yeah person be look like they're 75 years old yeah. because of this drug this drug is the worst i still can't believe i got out of it without like Dude. Meth, meth teeth or like looking methed out you you basically got like grazed by a semi yeah. instead of hit by a truck I dipped a 14 year old toe in it and then got burned and stepped back bless Thank it fucking god blessed be yeah jesus christ i know it's crazy it's thank god yeah because your skin would look so bad <laughs> we're the worst people okay so but i just bring that up because in this story it, it, it goes on and he's kind of like this successful fucking meth right maker and distributor and dealer yeah and there is this other side to that where he's fucking living like a king yeah. because everybody fucking quote unquote loves meth it's getting sick and addicted they're and so addicted it's yeah. like meth is the one where it's like you do it once and you're done for it's terrible it's, it's terrible it's a scourge okay so but not on not on scott's side of no. the side of things he makes so much money he's got his plot of land and uh, he uses the real house on the property to cook the meth in. Mm -hmm. And then he decides to build himself. And this is the methiest project of all time. <laughs> a three story, 1500 square foot tree house to live wow. in. Wow. And this tree house spans seven cedar trees and it has running water. It what? has electricity. It has an outdoor bathtub. It has a zip line running from the house through the woods what? for quote unquote emergency escapes. And it has my favorite tree house amount of all time yeah. a large fireplace <laughs> no <laughs> don't do that you're on drugs <laughs> hello and welcome you're on drugs you know what i need for my treehouse a fireplace a fire place i want a wood i want a log stack too so i can get wood for the fire yep can you go down and get me some <laughs> some wood and bring it back up into the treehouse so we can have a nice roaring fucking fire and do oh. huge rails of meth uh. mixed with baby laxative and fucking Clorox? Oh okay. God. Guys, calm down, Karen. <laughs> so he brags to his buddies that he built the treehouse in two weeks. Are you serious? <laughs> if someone told me that, I'd be like, well, I'm never going up there. You right? should, should take longer. It's, yeah, you should really go over. It actually turned out that the truth of it was it took him a couple months. But to him, it felt like a couple weeks because oh, no. he was on meth. Yeah. Um, Time flies when you're tweaked out as hell. When you, do you don't sleep and your eyes just stay open for 18 days in a row. <laughs> um, he ends up hiring his friend Kevin's brother, Steve Myers, mm -hmm. who uh, was a very successful sculptor who's fallen on hard times and needs money. So he says, oh, I'll pay you to come and help me work on the treehouse. According to Steve, and this is a quote from Wikipedia, quote, there was nothing in the house that was conscientiously designed. <laughs> and that's very much what Scott was like, a.k.a. Photos? on meth yeah. of this treehouse. Uh -huh. I didn't see any. It's the thing where you, you see the photos of like when spiders take, they give spiders certain drugs <laughs> yes. and then they show you what their web looks like. Yes. That's just makes me think of that. Yeah. They give meth heads 
tools. Yeah. And then they. It's the big human spider web of a treehouse project gone meth. Long arrived. Gone. It's like, can we get more fire elements into this treehouse? Oh. I don't know. Should we, is this the candle room? Yeah. We'll just have lit candles in here all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's just a fucking nightmare. Um, so. He's living that treehouse life, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's just blazing off of all his drug money. He has, quote, this is my favorite piece of research, a free and open demeanor. I'm fucking, <laughs> no shit. Oh, you're not going to be like conservative. No, not on meth. No. You might have started conservative, yeah. but then slowly but surely your tie gets loose <laughs> and you have a, quote, free and open demeanor. <laughs> he walks around nude a lot. Mm-hmm. He travels a ton and he has lots of girlfriends. <laughs> Which, in my mind, when I read that, it was all happening at the airport at once. <laughs> it was like, the fucking naked guy's here again. He's going to fucking Ibiza with three girls, and he's nude. Whoa. He's nude at gate B. So, he also becomes known for really, you know, being a free spender, which is very nice of him. He actually, people start, he's known around town for leaving waitresses like $1,000 wow. tips. Um he makes so much money, he drops out of med school. Sure. No, Dr. Meth, come back. <laughs> Please. You're, <laughs> you're needed. This world needs you. We, we need someone that can't stop talking <laughs> here in the emergency room. Okay, so in 1989, Scott's main meth distributor gets murdered on oh, the job. Oh, Jesus. This is not about that murder. Okay. And we don't know that person's name, but it scares Scott so badly that he stops cooking and selling meth entirely. Sure. He knows that he's been fucking around and like yeah. and basically getting away with something. Yeah. Then he looks around and goes, "Oh shit, my treehouse has a fireplace. This is not <laughs> a way any person should live." Just kidding. He never says that. He spends the next few years living off his remaining drug earnings, mm. and then when that's gone, he starts digging up all the drugs he's sealed in plastic buckets what? and buried around his property, no. and starts selling that off. He's like, "I took a break and I'm back." Yeah, baby. But, but basically, that was his um, that was his nest egg. That was that was his 401k oh that he had God. buried in buckets around the property. So once does meth stay fresh? I you tell me. <laughs> I don't know. There's never any left. <laughs> It can't. You know. Yeah, exactly. That all happened in a in a three week period. Right. But basically, the money starts to run out. He realizes he needs to come up with more money somehow, and that's when he comes up with Plan E. Oh, yeah. We've gone to Plan E. He's, he's walking away from this highly unethical life as a drug kingpin to follow what he's discovered now is his true passion: robbing banks. Oh my God. So. Yes. He basically is like, I'm going to walk, I'm going to get away from this meth life and I'm going to do what I really want. You know what feels safer and saner at this point? You know what I've always, so he literally tells Steve Myers he's always dreamt of robbing banks and giving the money away Robin Hood style. That's dumb. And then Oprah (laughs) comes in sideways from the side, dips in and goes, follow that dream, Scott. (laughs) Do it. Oprah told me. (laughs) I hallucinated Oprah in front of the fireplace. So... Basically, this is a very positive way of saying he hit fucking rock bottom on meth yeah. and had no other alternatives or a place to go. So he calls up another old friend from college, a guy named Mark Biggins, and he had also hired Mark to work on the treehouse. <laughs> Basically, he was this psychotic rich guy on meth who was like, my old broke friends, are you going through hard times? I'll pay you to come do drugs and like put put up um, treehouse 
uh, construction. New wings. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, I mean, good on you. Like, your friends need help, but then they become math addicts. Too. It's very Winchester Mystery House on math. Yeah. Is what I, in a tree, I'm saying it. Yeah. So, so basically, he calls Mark. He's, uh, Mark again is having financial trouble. Scott uses this to convince him basically to rob a bank with him. Okay. Dude, fucking do it. <laughs> Bro, bros before hoes. Do it. And so then Mark was like, sure. So, just before noon on June 25th, 1992, Scott and Mark walk into the Sea First Bank at a 4112 East Madison Street in Olympia, Washington. Mm-hmm. Scott's wearing a fake nose and heavy theatrical makeup. Mm. Mark's wearing a, Ma- a Ronald Reagan mask. I feel like rule one of robbing banks should be like, go to a different town. Yes. Right? Yes. Don't, don't do your hometown bank. <laughs> That's right. Because the getaway drive. Yeah. You're like, I'm around like the around corner. the corner <laughs> trying to hide your car. I mean, like, yeah, yeah it, 100%. I think we're... And Olympia is like a small town, kind of. It's it's not a, it's not a huge metropolis, no. that's for sure. So they get inside. They steal $19,971 wow. in cash. They go outside. They successfully steal a car mm. from one of the customers at the bank so that it can't be traced mm-hmm. to them. But... Mark's the getaway driver and he kind of can't handle it. So he floods the engine on this car. Come on. <laughs> which means they stole a car old enough to be able to yeah. flood the engine. But didn't they all do that in 92? No, I don't think you can't. I think, I think they stole like an old fucking, yeah. uh, like a Ford, like a Nova or something. Yeah. That's a Chevy. But <laughs> they stole some shitty old car. Then Mark immediately floods oh, the engine. Like Mark guns it, puts his foot all the way down on the gas. And then they're just like, dude. Oh, no. So they have to get out and run. No! <laughs> yes. So they fucking... So uh, they're chased by dogs on this run home. No. They have to cross a golf course that's busy. And a bunch of fucking people see them run across the golf course. Uh-uh. And, and they still manage to get away. Aye. Again... <laughs> The magic of math. So now he's not on it anymore. Well, we don't know that. Well, I mean, it seems like they might be dabbling. (laughs) The experience scares Mark so badly that he tells Scott, I'm never doing this again. But Scott actually has the opposite experience because he gets a huge fucking hit of adrenaline. And he's like, now this is all I want to do for the rest of my life. And he can't wait to do it again. So... Scott taps his old tomato farm friend from Hawaii, Kevin, Mm -hmm. to team up with him and serve as a lookout. Kevin says, no fucking way, you idiot. Mm -hmm. But Scott is able to convince him to launder the stolen money at Las Vegas casinos for him. Okay. So um, basically... Now, simultaneously, he, he's successful in his first bank robbery and it's the tech boom in Seattle and the, like that area in that generalized area. Yeah. So most banks at that time were teeming with cash. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, Scott decides that he's going to um, invest in a bunch of movie quality masks, costumes, and theatrical makeup. Um, If we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's really go for it. Let's really go for it. Because his whole idea is if like if I uh, I don't. I can go in. They they won't be able to recognize me, but for reasons that people that aren't people don't normally do. Right. So this is about the him him using makeup. Scott Skurlock's greatest contribution to the lexicon of bank robbery tactics was the use of theatrical makeup, and this completely disguised his huh. face, while at the same time not causing the immediate visible stir. 
caused by an idiot wearing a ski mask. You never see, you also never see theatrical makeup in movies about bank robbery as that's just too good of a tip to Whoa. give a potential robber. Uh-uh. So Scott's girl had an arrangement where theatrical makeup was bought, ordered, and shipped to a friend mm-hmm. who'd nary a clue as to what it was being used for. And this is the path to wisdom, should there be any, in organized crime. Oh my God. So apparently he would walk in and people, he would, he would have like a weird crone's face. Well, you've seen like the Kim Kardashian before and after contouring. She looks like a different freaking person. <laughs> yeah. Is that like what were they good? Yes. It's contouring, but essentially he would give himself an old person's yeah. face, but still move like a young person. <sighs> so people, that's how later on people knew it was the Hollywood bandit is they'd be like, Oh, this is a weird, this is not yeah. the person. But in the beginning, it was very effective because it was like, Oh, that's an old person or that's yeah. like an old woman no or one something. Would panic. Right. No, there would, there, that energy would not be there and he wouldn't be, he would have a gun on him, yeah. but he wouldn't be like waving it around going, right. everybody get down. He would just be like a person. Yeah. And, and it was super, super low key and super effective. Okay. Perfect. So in 1992, Scott disguises himself. He arms himself with a handgun and he successfully robs five more banks. Holy shit. By himself. Oh my God. So on August 14th, 1992, he robs the C-First Bank again. He goes back to the same one they already hit Aye. and he gets 8124 more dollars. On September 3rd, he robs the U.S. Bank at 4200 Southwest Edmond Street and he gets almost $10,000. On September 11th, 1992, he robs the University Savings and Loan at 4568 Sand Point Way Northeast and gets almost $6,000. On October 5th, he robs the Great Western Bank at 2610 California Avenue Southwest, and he gets uh, $27,500. Wow. And on November 9th, 1992, he robs the C-First Bank at 4020 Northeast 55th Street, and he gets, he wins, I wrote, a whopping $252,000. Oh, my God. Quit. Quit at this point, guys. Quit. You're ahead. You're done. But you know why he can't? Meth. Because now he's high on the deadliest drug of all, hubris. <laughs> I laughed so hard when I wrote that down today. Okay. He's he's getting away with it. Yeah. And it's working. So there's no way he's fucking stopping now. Yeah, yeah. Police ha- have no idea who this mystery bank robber is. They're doing everything everything they can to catch him they nickname him hollywood because of his high quality disguises mm. the media picks up on it gives it <laughs> gives it its own twist they start calling him the hollywood bandit mm. which is in writer in writer's rooms they would say don't do lateral pitches if you can't beat the original <laughs> idea then just don't pitch at all Good anyway <laughs> Yeah. Any anyone can re-say the things someone else just said. That's that's not being funny. That's knowing synonyms, like with a different word. Yeah, you, it's like oh, we're gonna call him Hollywood. Well, we're gonna call him the Hollywood Bandit. Okay, okay. Well, that's the same basic idea, right? Okay. Quit fucking cheating. Okay, so no matter what they call him, the disguises are working because there's almost no evidence and the authorities have have no idea. And so Scott decides to lay low for a little while. Smart. Right? So he takes his winnings and his earnings and his money. And about after about a year, he wants to go back to the life. So this time he asks Steve Meyer's help. Uh, the guy that helped him with the, with, with the treehouse. Okay, okay. In my mind, Steve Myers is Steve Zahn. You know, that actor oh, yeah. out of sight who's like, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Kind of a burnout, but like yep. reliable. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so Steve Zahn plays the part of Steve Myers. He's now the lookout. And so on November 24th, 1993, the day before Thanksgiving, they once again stake out the Sea First Bank. <laughs> Steve plants himself outside. He's listening to a police scanner as Scott goes in holding the gun and wearing makeup on his face. Mm-hmm. But then Steve hears that the 911 mm-hmm. call coming in about the robbery. So he goes, gets Scott. They flee. Shit. And, uh, they basically they get they get away again. Oh my god! They wait about a month and then they proceed to rob five ba- what five more the banks. Fuck! So basically, it's U.S. Ba- I won't give you the addresses yeah. this time because that took too long. January twenty first, U.S. Bank, fifteen thousand, almost sixteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars on that one. February seventeenth, C First Bank. It's that same one on North um, Northeast Fifty Fifth Street. This time they get a hundred and fourteen thousand dollars. June twenty fourth, they go to First Inter- State Bank in Portland, Oregon on Hawthorne, uh-huh. and they get zero dollars and zero cents because Scott ends up uh, aborting the mission mm-hmm. because he, he it says unsafe um, <laughs> what does it say? Unsafe conditions. And you know it was a security guard who was retiring the next day. He's like, <laughs> fuck this shit. <laughs> Pulls his gun. There's no fucking way you guys are getting away with Not this. Not on my watch. This is, and then Scott's like, this is unsafe. I feel unsafe. <laughs> um, so that's a zip. July 13th, the first interstate bank, um, on Queen Anne Avenue. Oops, uh, a hundred, uh, over a hundred thousand dollars on that wow. one. Wow. On December 20th, um, there's a U.S. bank on Woodstock Boulevard in Portland and they get $22,000 from that. Mm-hmm. So it's another successful year of bank robberies. <laughs> and so Scott takes those victories and goes back to Mark Biggins, who did the very first robbery with him and then quit uh-huh. the the engine flutter. And he's like, join this team. Yeah. We're yeah. moving forward. What We're, do I have to do to prove it to you? What do you want? Ten. Pile money? Pile money. What do you want me to do? Do you want... I will do a cat eye eyeliner on you. <laughs> I'm really good at it at this point. Um, okay. So now they're, they're, now they're a, a trio. Okay. These guys. Um, this is actually really starting to line up pretty severely with the movie Out of Sight, starring George Clooney oh. and J-Lo with Steve Zahn. Oh. Actually also in Whoa. it. A lot of... Mo- at the beginning, when it was the pot plants, I was thinking it was like the beach with Leo DiCaprio. Then we're moving into this part, and it's getting very out of sight with bank robbers in or out of their J-Lo. comfort zone. Great in that. Oh, the best she's ever been. Yeah. Second only to Hustler. Truly. So Mark's on board. He's the lookout. He's the lookout from inside the bank. So Steve's watching outside the bank and Scott's doing everything and planning it and orchestrating it. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, this trio robs more, two more banks in 1995. Um, but on one of them, a die pack explodes Mm-mm. and they basically have to bail on the money, but they still get away without getting caught. Yeah. Um, so they do on January 18th, they get $11,000, almost $12,000 from the first interstate bank, but then they have to bail on $12,000 because it's all got die on it. Dude. Uh, and then on January 27th, they go to the Sea First Bank and they get $252,000. Quit. Quit now. Seriously. You've got enough. So they think um, the key to their success is uh, 
Scott's calm demeanor. Steve, this is Steve later being interviewed. And he mm-hmm. says, um, Scott's whole point was if you go in crazy with violence and waving a gun and something does happen, what do you do then? Yeah. Most people working in banks realize this guy is not afraid. And that's more frightening and commanding without having to be crazy. Wow. Tactics. So he, so he kind of went in with some weird makeup on his face and was just like, give me your money. It's yeah. me. And they all kind of went, oh, okay. So, of course, now the, the, the cops in the area have called in the FBI. The FBI thinks still it's only this one robber. They mm-hmm. don't know that there's other people on the team. Um, and, of course, they don't have any evidence because none of the, if there is security footage, it's an unrecognizable person. Yeah. Uh, the Washington State Bankers Association and the Crime Stoppers of Puget Sound band <laughs> together and they get 50 grand together for a, war, a reward for this bank robber's capture. Mm-hmm. No one comes forward. No one has any useful information. Okay. By the end of 1995, uh, the FBI has enough incidences that they start tracking patterns in the bank robber's behavior. Hmm. They notice the timing is based around how much money um, is pulled in from previous heists. So they... Uh, so they basically are like, okay, this guy, if he steals X amount, he's going to come back because he, he needs to live on 20 grand a month. Okay. So they're like, they start being able to predict when wow. they're going to hit banks. That's so interesting. Which also is how often they're doing it. Yeah. And not, and not getting caught. Oh, you guys, stop. So using this. Uh, logic, they take an educated guess and, uh, as to where the next robbery will be. So on, uh, where and when the next robbery will be. So, um, they think it's going to happen January 25th, 1996 at the Seafirst Bank. Wow. They fucking love the Seafirst yeah, Bank. Yeah, they do. Uh, so they stake, they stake out the Seafirst, um, and it turns out that the date is correct, <gasps> but the bank is wrong. The, the tree. They got the date right. They got the date exactly That's right. Crazy. But the bank, that the guys actually rob is the first interstate bank mm. that's two miles away from that sea first bank. Mm. So before uh, the FBI can get over there, the guys get away from the first interstate bank with $141,000. Wow. Almost $142,000. So this lasts the guy until May of that year. So this is in January. Yeah. So they go till May and then they... Um, they decide to hit the Madison Park branch of the first interstate bank. And from that one, they get a hundred, almost $115,000. What the so crap? It's just working. This is like, it's a plan that's going well. Yeah. So then th- this is around this time. Scott finds out there's this $50,000 reward, um, for information about mm-hmm. him. And he decides, no, he takes this information and does. In classic Scott fashion, he decides, well, then we should rob five banks in one day. <gasps> Why? Uh, because that's where his logic takes oh, him. Jeez. Because he's uh, an adventurer. Oh, God. He's just showing off at this point. He's 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 high on adrenaline. Yeah. He's he can't get a big enough fix. Yeah. So uh, they hear the police have told every bank in the Seattle area to put electronic tracers on stolen money or mm-hmm. like on the money. Yeah. Yeah. So they decide that with that piece of information, they're just going to hit one bank. Okay. So at 541 Wednesday, November 27th, 1996, Scott and Mark, with wearing their disguises, walk into a brand new bank they've never hit before. It's the Steve First Bank in nearby Lake City. Mm-hmm. Steve's outside keeping watch. What the boys don't know <gasps> as they walk in is that the bank teller working there that day knew all about the Hollywood bandit. Uh-huh. He was all read up. He knew exactly... 
was a full-on fucking murderino. <laughs> and the second those two walked in, he hits the silent yeah. alarm. Just like he knew. ankle in the doorway. So police are in other neighborhoods. They, they're not anticipating that, that the Lake City Bank is the one they're going to hit. So they race over toward the bank they're actually, this bank they're at. Um, but the robbers get it done in less than four minutes. Wow. And get out. So, pr- I, I wouldn't want to press the, the button, panic button, because then you're in a hostage situation. Like, I'd rather them get away and then you press the button. Do you know what I mean? Yes, that's smart, except for that I think this guy is just like, let's catch him. Yeah. Maybe oh. because there wasn't, maybe. Maybe he'd never hurt anyone, so he didn't think that they were going to do anything. Yeah. Like, that. it wasn't a gu- everybody on the floor thing at all that right, they did. Right. They were just kind of like. They were gentle robbers. They were, they were more into the theatrics and the makeup <laughs> is what it felt like to me. But I just love the idea that the guy sees what, what if it was just a weird looking person? <laughs> they get up to He's the like, window. Never mind, never mind, never mind. Oh man, this nose, you got to see it. Sorry. It's just a strangely shaped nose and a lot of eyeliner. But the, once they leave, a customer defies their order. So apparently they did say like everybody, they must have made people yeah. get on the ground or yeah. whatever, but it's like, don't, nobody follow us out. Yeah. So I'm, As if like, I'm coming with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but apparently it's just like, yeah, you wave a gun around and go, everybody stay where you are. Right. They'll do it. Sure. Uh, but this one bank customer did not do it and immediately got up, walked outside mm. and saw the car they drove away in. You crazy kid. You, you super rebel. Stay on the ground. Um, um, but that person sees them get into a blue Dodge Caravan, immediately calls the cops, tells them, gives them the vehicle description and the direction that they are going. Wow. So. No cell phones. This is all without <laughs> cell phones, everyone. That's, that's right. That's right. 96. You have cell phones. Yeah, no. So the Treehouse Trio, I like to call them, they ditch that <laughs> that caravan, the blue caravan, uh-huh. and they immediately steal a white Chevy Astro van. Sure. That's inconspicuous. Right? All those cars that you literally don't see when they're driving down the freeway. <laughs> right. They're just background cars. Yeah. Um, so, but the problem is now it's nighttime, it's dark, it's raining, and they're caught in holiday rush hour traffic. What? <laughs> so they're just sitting. In you don't this. think of bank robbers as having to deal with shit. Like ho- like with fucking holiday like, ugh, trying to merge. Yeah. No one let us merge. Yeah. And then they were just trying to Are get away. Carp- Can we be in the carpool lane? And on top of that, um they're Scott's driving and Mark and Steve are using their flashlights to to look through the money to see if there's electronic tracers oh. in the money. And a cop yep. behind them sees guys using flashlights inside yeah. a van yeah. and immediately uh, are uh, start to tail them yeah. and watch them. Uh, the phrase used here is it's unclear who fired first. What? I would bet a lot of my a personal fortune that the cops <laughs> fired first. You got to think. But they're qu- the guys quickly find themselves being shot at by police. Stephen and Mark are each shot in the arm and they're like basically rendered immobile. Uh-huh. Scott pulls off on the uh, side street to try to fire a shotgun back at the cops. Don't do that. He's driving. Yeah, please don't do that. Yeah. The gun jams. So he then has to drive off again, which is a very like unslick. No. Yeah. Like action sequence in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Just like you try to pull over, you try to shoot. Yeah, uh, I'm getting it. I'm starting that last one again. And then he guns it in this um, an Astro van so he goes from five to seven miles an yeah. hour down this alley the cops pursue the van they fire at it and Mark 
who still injured, shot in the arm, fires back. Eventually, Scott veers off the road and crashes into the side of a house. Mm. So the police swarm the van. They get inside. They find Mark and Steve bleeding over just about a million dollars. Oh, my God. That's how much they got or they had in the car? Uh, that's how much was in the car. Whoa. I don't know if they brought all their all their winnings yeah. to every robbery. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. So it must have been what they got. But t- Scott... The driver and the makeup artist has run. Okay. Okay. So he's on foot and nowhere to be found. Uh, so the police section off a six block radius in search of the Hollywood bandit. And um, they continued this search into Thanksgiving Day. Because remember, it was Thanksgiving uh-huh. Eve. So a woman who lived within that six block radius named Wilma Walker. Wilma. Wilma sees the report of the fugitive that's in her neighborhood on the news. So she asked her son, Ronald, to go check the family camper in the backyard just for <gasps> peace of mind. Oh, no. And when Ronald checks the camper out, he sees there's a man inside. So he calls the cops. Police arrive on the scene. They knock on the camper door. They announce themselves. No one responds. They throw a canister of pepper spray inside. Uh Nothing happens. At this point, they think no one's in there. But so they're like, there's nothing going on. The Walker family is like, we need you to make sure by putting your eyes on the inside. Open the door. Do it. So Sergeant Howard Monta uses his flashlight to look inside the camper. And as he does, a gunshot goes off. (gasps) So at at first, Sergeant Monta thinks he's been shot. Mm -hmm. And then when he realizes that he's okay, other two other officers on the scene, open fire on the camper, Holy and then shit. backup arrives. They wait for four hours to see if anyone's going to come out. Oh, my God. And when there's no movement, they fill the camper with tear gas to be safe. Ugh. And they finally enter the camper with gas masks on. And inside, they find the body of the Hollywood bandit, soon to be identified as 41-year-old Scott Skurlock. With one self-inflicted bullet wound in his head. No way. So he killed himself because he was surrounded. So that one shot that he first, that they first heard was him shooting himself. Wow. So in total, Scott committed 18 robberies and he stole approximately with different team members, $2.3 million, (sighs) making him one of the most prolific bank robbers in U.S. history. Wow! After receiving medical treatment for their gunshot wounds, both Mark Biggins and Steve Myers are sentenced to 21 years in prison each. Wow! Steve's released early in 2013. Mark's released in 2015 after serving his full term. And that is the cinematic tale of the Hollywood bandit, Scott Sirlock. Wow! That was awesome. (laughs) Isn't that the most nuts? Twists, turns, all of these things. Masks, fireplaces. They're everywhere. Treehouses. Treehouses, even. When I got to that part in the story, because I was like, "Eh, this is a little bit off. This is not a (laughs) classic whatever. And then I was just like, oh, we've hit, we've hit pay dirt here. Oh my goodness. With that tree, the treehouse made it for me. And that man's 41 years. He lived a million lives. He did it and he did it and he did it. Yeah. He was, he was addicted to the meth of life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. That was incredible. Oh, thank you. Good job. Thank you so much. Would you have a fucking hooray? Is it time? Yeah, let's do it. Well, yeah. Let's do it. Okay. You want to go first? You want me to? Okay. Did I tell you all, did I tell everyone publicly already that I upped my, I'm, I'm up to my therapy days? Yeah. I don't think you talked about it on here. Let's okay. Go. So 
I decided since I have the time and the money, yeah, I get to go to therapy three times a week. That's incredible, Karen. And I have to say this now, uh, this is it. I'm a narcissist. I could fucking <laughs> sit in front of anyone and talk about myself. Clearly, <laughs> obviously, yeah. Uh, just look at my podcasting history, but it is so helpful because in especially when things come up lately like we were talking about trust issues and stuff when things come up and they really affect me my life coping strategy is usually you're not supposed to be feeling these feelings so shut it down yeah and shut it down shame over them and yeah and truly feeling um yeah like you're not like i because I have this strong emotion, say jealousy, yeah, or um, or j- just straight up anger or whatever, that that makes me weak and lame and irresponsible, it's like you're or whatever. A dog and you're whacking it on the head with a newspaper, where it's like that doesn't do anything. No, and it and that dog gets to be here. Yes, she got us <laughs> Look here. How cute it is. Look at that fucking dog. That dog never did anything. Wait a second, it's a person. It's not a dog. <laughs> me. Um. So. That basically, you know, this morning it was just like that thing where I get to continue this conversation. So it's not the week later where because I also do this thing in therapy where I go, this isn't worth talking about. I shouldn't be discussing this. This is self-indulgent. There's so much judging. 50 minutes a week. Yes. It's like not enough time to like get into the deep shit. No. And it and it takes this kind of like for me anyway, because there's already this gauntlet to run Mm -hmm. of shame and weird. Don't don't do this and all these weird rules I make up. It's like she's just now catching on of like, hold on. Why are you doing that? Hold on. Just yesterday you said this. Yeah. Whereas when I go once a week, no one can track those conversations. So she'll be like, I don't know. I remember like she's good at doing that. But now it's this very concentrated thing. And it's. I can't tell you how much it's helping me in this realization of I that actually I'm fine. Yeah. That actually when we work through all this stuff and if I just allow myself to be a human being and like I get to I get to be mad, I get to be angry, I get to be jealous, whatever. And that all those things are just indicators that something needs to be tended to. Yeah. There's you don't. Like you're saying, you don't beat the dog for just being there. You go, oh, the dog's here to tell me something. Yeah. And that is actually then you can then like you can actually start to move stuff around and deal with stuff and and figure out how you actually feel. Because it's almost like I have the the incident that incites a feeling and I don't actually know how I feel because I panic and just get mad or panic and just right. have this one reaction where it's like, no, no, it's like calm down and actually own the, the real feeling yeah. and stop judging. It. I'm so bad at that too. It's fucking hard because it's all it's the vulnerability thing. Yeah, totally. And yeah. feeling weak and everything. It just feels gross. Yes, you feel like I just just punish this out of me or just like berate this out of yeah. me so that I don't do it anymore because it's not right. And it's like yeah, it fucking is. It's human feeling. It's you being a human being. Amazing. Congratulations. I mean, <laughs> she's doing all the work, but <laughs> no, I certainly, I certainly are. am showing up ten minutes late every time. <laughs> I certainly am doing that. Well, mine was going to be. It was between afternoon baths. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which I highly recommend. A hit. I have this thing. Ten years ago, I quit my day desk job to like try this whole world of not having a desk job. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I still, to this day, like, revel in the 3 p.m. nap and, like, what I would have been doing 10 years ago at my desk job. I'm I'm not over it yet. Yes. So yesterday I was freezing my fucking ass off and I couldn't get warm. And so I took a bath at, like, 3 p.m. And it was heaven. Heaven. It was, like, if you can, I just can't get over, like, if you can do stuff like that, do it. Treat yourself. Like, take a nap. Take a bath. Like, do those things. Watch TV in the middle of the day. Like, if you can do that, great. Yeah. That's it. That's my, that's my, that's my, um, what's it called that everyone's obsessed with now? Self-care? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The big trend that's going around. What's that hashtag everyone loves? But, but. And I think we talked about this before. Baths are good for you. Right. I mean, they're, it's actually. Eps, eps, those Epsom salt baths, man. Man, it actually does something po- very positive yeah. for your body. Yeah. And it kind of points out where you're like, like, totally. holding on to some stuff. I love it. That'll be, that's mine then. That's good. Yeah. That's great. Hashtag self care. Hashtag privilege. <laughs> hashtag bathtub time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things. Hashtag. Uh, Do it. Uh, Honor. You know, uh, seven days of therapy, 20, therapy 24 7. <laughs> Hashtag <goal>. blessed. <laughs> Hashtag math. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys for listening. We, I, we don't tell you this enough, but we are so grateful to the fucking incredible listeners that we have of this show. And I don't think there's any podcast out there who has such awesome people who listen and we're just so lucky we've been going through some letters that you guys have I was been just sending gonna us, say yeah and they're just so beautiful i started crying on the couch today reading one we same yeah that's so funny I, I was gonna say the exact same thing that i we had we've been reading these letters that we uh we take stuff that you give us like it, that we get at live shows or that we get whatever and just pull letters and shove them into bags mm-hmm. going we know we're gonna read this at some point but yeah. we don't always do it like on the road we yeah. don't always have time to go through everything and i've been reading some that like the the amount of time i spend focusing on the problems that we have yeah. that need to get solved that's all i do yeah and that's all and i'm uh, I have training of doing it of you have to anticipate the thing that's totally. going to happen so we're ready. Totally. And it is it's a, a, a difficult way to live and we if we're going to do that we also should make sure we spend equal amount of time reading things where people say very nice things yes, to us so 100%. it's not always the problems and the bad and the, yeah. the ticking time bombs that are waiting for us everywhere <laughs> I mean they're still there turn. but but we have friends on the other side who are waiting for us. It's it's very it like it's it put my feet on the ground in a very meaningful way to read a couple letters where people would just say like here's specifically what you did when i needed it right because right here's what i was going through yeah it's really beautiful it's quite nice yeah thank you guys we we love you guys you're our best friend <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs> This is the most vulnerable episode of MFM That's yet. That's right. We love you. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? <laughs>